in terms of the scientific revolution. But that revolution cannot become a reality unless we are prepared to make far-reaching changes in economic and social attitudes which permeate our whole system of society. That's the announcement for Mercury Control. This is Walter Cronkite back at the CBS News Control Center at Cape Canaveral. I want to put it to bed once and for all. That is a complete myth. So I collected the emails and set up a list called the Drudge Report. One reader turned into five, then turned into a hundred, and faster than you could say, I never had sex with that woman, it was a thousand. It's always been a, a ruffled trade, which has tended to attract uh, non-conformists and rebels. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news, and this is Bruce Belfridge reading it. There's been trouble over the Falkland Islands and the British uh, territory of South Georgia, but the assessment is that the Argentine junta is not likely to resort to force because negotiations are going on about sovereignty. And as long as those negotiations go on, it's thought that the, the junta will hold off taking any precipitate action. Now, I was Principal Private Secretary to John Knott, the Defence Secretary, and we were working on a speech in on another matter in his house in the in, in his room in the House of Commons. Uh, a runner arrived from Whitehall with a locked pouch. In it were three pieces of signals intelligence. I'd started my career in GCHQ. I was used to reading that kind of material. The uh, intelligence really bore only one implication, one explanation, which was that the junta had decided to take matters into their own hand and they'd set a task force that was already at sea heading for the Falkland Islands, heading for Port Stanley. We have now sought an immediate meeting of the Security Council on the grounds that there could be a situation which threatens international peace and security. There is mounting evidence that the Argentine armed And they'd conducted a covert beach reconnaissance of Port Stanley. Again, that pointed pretty clearly to what they were intending to do. So we rushed down the corridor and we burst in on the Prime Minister and I showed her the intercepts. And she looked up and said, this is very serious, isn't it? Um, because she immediately saw the import of, of these messages uh, and uh, they were intercepted Argentine naval communications so it was pretty clear that uh, the, the, this was indeed uh, valuable intelligence uh, and the only answer, response is yes Prime Minister isn't it um, her first instinct was exactly the right one because she knew that there was nothing that the British government could do in the time available, the few days before the task force arrived to invade the islands. There was nothing she could do to stop them. There was only a handful of Royal Marines on the island. It was all too far away. So she said, I must speak to the president at once. Uh, we arranged for uh, uh, President Reagan was going to call Galtieri, the leader of the junta. They refused to take his call because they knew perfectly well that they'd have their arm twisted um, to call it off. So they just refused all communication and the uh, invasion duly take, took place. La fuerza de desembarco integrada por los efectivos de la infantería de marina y del ejército... What the uh, advance notice did do was it gave 
her uh, time uh, to, with the Ministry of Defence and with the first Sea Lord to work out that it would be possible to put a task force to sea to sail to the South Atlantic um, as a naval response. And this was ordered. I remember leaving her room to go and ring the Ministry of Defence and say, ready the fleet for sea. Um, that saved her political career because her head was on the political block. If there had been no warning, she would have woken up along with the British population and parliament on that Saturday morning to find the islands had been lost. Mr. Speaker, sir, the House meets this Saturday to respond to a situation of great gravity. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. I think the reaction of our own party would have been extreme as it was Carrington, Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary was felt obliged to resign over the incident. So she had that warning and that was just enough to prepare her response. But of course it would have been better still if we had strategic notice that this was a problem. Uh, the government was negotiating with the Argentine junta um, it could have pre-positioned a submarine or ships in the area. It could have reinforced the garrison given enough time, but it didn't. It relied on a kind of magical thinking, very common these days as well, that, well, we don't like that outcome, so we'll pretend it won't happen. And so they didn't. And the net result was a very large expenditure of lives on both sides and of treasure in order to recover the islands for the crown, which could have been prevented if that strategic notice had been thought about and heeded. The uh, situational awareness, the explanation, the, those were very close because the, the unusually the intelligence only bore one interpretation. It's usually the case that you get a fragment of intelligence and it could be interpreted in different ways. Uh, but we were lucky in that case that GCHQ had managed to decipher the uh, Argentine naval communication. Troops bearing down on Port Stanley meets General Menendez, his troops on the run. Welcome to the Technology, Power and Media podcast, investigating the intersection and relationships between technology, media and the power it creates, limits and changes. On this episode, Sir David Omond, spymaster, former GCHQ director and author of How Spies Think. I started thinking about this book um, at the time of the Brexit referendum and then the 2016 US presidential election and finding myself getting increasingly cross at the uh, level of disinformation, half-truths, deceptions uh, that were being uh, conveyed across uh, social media, trying to persuade us online of what we ought to think and want. And the, you know, there were downright falsehoods, there were deceptions, and not all of those were coming from Russia, aimed at widening divisions in society and increasingly setting us at each other's throats. Having spent seven years as a member of the British Joint Intelligence Committee, having watched intelligence analysts uh, at work, I thought it would be a good idea to try and set down uh, if you like, a manifesto in favour of rationality 
Of course, I mean, I do understand that when you have an important decision to take, there are two different kinds of thoughts you have to hold in your mind at the same time. There's the rational analysis, uh, which I describe as my C's method. And that should be objective, as objective as you can make it, as factually grounded as you can make it. But then you have the other side, which is the emotional reasons why you have a decision to take in the first place. Uh, what you hope to achieve by a decision, or perhaps it's what you fear, and you hope that your decision will avoid that. And uh, in the end, as we see with the COVID example, uh, you have the SAGE committee of scientists trying, and doctors trying to produce the objective advice, uh, analysis of the situation and some estimate of what is going to happen next. And you have the ministers with their democratic mandate and their need to satisfy the public. Uh, and these two have to be brought together. And what I observed when I started thinking about this was that the emotional side was creeping over to distort the rational analysis in too many cases. Uh, so I thought it was time to send out a manifesto, a call to arms, to get back to really thinking about how do you do objective analysis. Today, as we face this critical election for our country, I launch my manifesto for Britain's future. At the core of Omen's own manifesto is C's his framework for analytical thinking. The whole purpose of intelligence, of the human species having evolved intelligence, is to help make better decisions by reducing our level of ignorance of what we face. I mean, secret intelligence is simply doing that in respect of information that other people don't want you to have, like dictators and terrorists. But this idea that there are outputs from rational analysis that the decision maker needs to pay attention to. And I identify four of those that make up the acronym C's. The first is what I call situational awareness, answering questions that start with what, when, and where. This would be known to every journalist, what is actually happening or has happened, and where did it happen and when did it happen? Uh, not always easy to establish, and my first lesson in intelligence is that the, our knowledge of the world is always going to be incomplete and fragmentary and is sometimes wrong. Uh, and we all have to acknowledge that. But if you have that sort of factually grounded uh, situational awareness, then it doesn't actually tell you what is going on. Uh, you, facts need explaining. And this is something that's known to every defense lawyer. Uh, the, the fingerprints of the accused were found on the fragments of a bottle thrown at the police. Was that because the accused threw the bottle? Or did the mob rushing past his house pick up the bottle from the recycling bin outside his house? Two different explanations of the same factoid his fingerprints were genuinely on the piece of the bottle, the fragment of the bottle. And that's true of every fact. Facts uh, have to be invested with meaning by human beings. And there are countless examples where you, know, you can debate for a long time about what the meaning 
of the fact actually is. So the second uh, letter in C is the E, first E, is for explanation. It's hard to do. Um, it may require, in many cases, knowledge of foreign languages, knowledge of the culture that you're reporting on, uh, the uh, quite a deep understanding of human motivations to come to a proper uh, sound explanation of why you're seeing what you're seeing, why you have this situational awareness. But if you have a good explanation, a sound explanation, and you may have to compare a number of hypotheses and uh, set them up against the evidence to see which one of them uh, is least contradicted by the evidence. You don't pick the, the, the explanation which has the most evidence in favor of it. You pick the explanation which has the least evidence against it. Because we all know that if you look hard enough, you can always find a piece of evidence that you can say is, uh, supports your argument. Uh, that's in part why we got the 2002-2003 intelligence wrong in the run-up to the war on Iraq. If you look hard enough, you will find some evidence which appears to support your hypothesis. You have to, but it's really the, the explanation which has the least against it uh, that you should be trying to, to to select. But if you've got the good uh, explanation and you've got enough facts, then you move on to what uh, uh, is the most important, which is giving an estimate of how things are likely to unfold on different assumptions. You have to make assumptions uh, about how others will act. But if you take uh, uh, COVID, for example, if you've got good explanation of how the virus is actually transmitting, uh, you've got facts on the ground about where it is and uh, 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 who's been affected, you can then produce for government quite a good estimate of how things will unfold on certain assumptions, uh, which you have to make clear to the decision makers. Uh, and that, certainly in the intelligence world, is the most valuable form of output from analysis, because you're giving the decision makers some way of modelling the future. If you were to behave in this way and act in this way, this is what how we think things will unfold on different assumptions. But of course, the that's the second E in C's. But of course, whilst you're focusing on all of that, uh, something totally unexpected is liable to come along and hit you on the back of the head. And history shows that very often these surprises take place. Um, so the final S in C's is strategic notice. By careful analysis, you can look over the horizon and you can try and work out what are the serious um, issues or disturbances or technical developments or whatever it might be, geopolitical developments, which might come and surprise you. This is all very well and good in a hygienic, relaxed environment. But what of a business seeking an M&A deal or a journalist trying to hit a deadline? Same outputs are needed. So you've got to have enough facts on the ground. If you haven't got them, you've got to go out and get them. Um, in some ways, that's easier these days than it ever used to be because communications are much swifter. Uh, uh, a journalist in the field can report back uh, 
very directly in ways that were harder 20 years ago. And there's more open source information to cross-check against. You can't just take it for granted and believe it. You've got to check it. But there is more information available. The explanation part uh, is still hard. It's easy to jump to conclusions. It's what I call the inductive fallacy. You just have the, 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 the facts on the ground and you just extrapolate without having a very good explanation of the motivations of people involved. So you have to be careful with that. And then you do have to be careful with projecting forward to make it clear to the readers, if you're in the journalism business, what the assumptions are that you're making when that editorial was written. The COVID, current COVID crisis, I think is very clear in that you have to be very straightforward with the public. You know, this estimate of what is going to happen depends on social mixing uh, uh, be, uh, rules being obeyed, or it depends on mask wearing, or we're making the assumption that mask wearing has this effect on the overall spread of the virus. Uh, and those are all assumptions. Um, they could be uh, uh, shown to be false. Uh, by subsequent information. And so the point about Bayesian inference is that you have new information and you're under a duty to reassess what previously you'd thought in the light of the new information. Politicians hate that because you will accuse them of a U-turn. But you know, the, the honorable thing to do is if new evidence arrives and it appears to change your uh, degree of belief uh, in what is what is true, then you have to change your change your mind. This all sounds very good in theory, but all organisations have a political structure, and decision makers tend to take advice from those who they like. Prime ministers surround themselves with different kinds of advisors, and the official view is only one, and that's perfectly proper. Anyone is entitled to turn to anyone else for uh, advice on an issue. But the test is really, does the, new, the alternative advice stack up? And for that, you need objective analysis. Um, it's right for uh, politicians to push back against the official advice they're getting, particularly to tease out those crucial assumptions what assumption have you made here in telling me that this is the next thing that's going to happen? But at a very early age, he became addicted to um, Bolshevism. Um, and um, after some uh, adventures in Vienna, he was in fact recruited at the age, I think, of uh, 19, 19 or 20. He was recruited into the Soviet intelligence service as a secret agent. His job was tip for the top of MI6. Kim Philby was in fact a double agent working for the Soviet Union. He used his club ability to rise through the ranks of the secret intelligence service, raising questions about diversity of personnel and diversity of thought. I think it's, it's absolutely essential and I think it would be generally accepted inside the secret world that the, uh, uh, if you like, uh, English establishment that ran uh, uh, secret intelligence uh, in those days had serious uh, issues around conformity 
uh, you need a diverse uh, set of minds. It's one of the points that's been em emphasized recently by the uh, current uh, director of GCHQ, uh, saying that GCHQ must recruit a very diverse set of minds. Uh, because if you don't, then your chances of coming up with uh, really imaginative solutions to problems is obviously very much less. So yes, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a key lesson. Um, sometimes it comes about through what I describe in the book as groupthink. So you have a group of advisors, they know each other very well, they've worked together a lot. Um, there is a predominant view and the odd maverick who tries to <laughs> say, but... <laughs> There's new information here, may well be shouted down, particularly if they're junior. So in the intelligence world, there are sort of challenge processes built in, uh, sort of devil's advocate processes. And I think if you have a big decision, personal decision to take, you'd be well advised to find somebody who's not too closely involved in that mm. uh, issue and uh, that you trust and say, well, what am I getting wrong here? I'm convinced I have to do this. Is that right? Uh, and then you may be surprised if they say, well, actually, you're giving far too much uh, emphasis to this aspect of the problem, and you haven't really considered that. A key part of this process is a presentation of information. How much is brevity taken into account by the intelligence community? Obviously, there have been some senior politicians who say, well, I'm not prepared to read anything that's more than a paragraph or too long. Um, civil servants and advisors get used to summarizing uh, or putting the way the Joint Intelligence Committee does it is putting key judgments right at the very front, including any judgments which overturn previous judgments. So you're immediately alerting the reader, this has changed or this is significant. Um, it, it's quite an art to write an effective uh, estimate of what is going to happen, particularly if it's something that really counts as a warning. Uh, an effective warning is a number of things. It's uh, a statement about the world. So you, you, claim, you have a knowledge claim. A journalist would say, we have uncovered something. So that's your knowledge claim. But then there's why... Is that important to the person who's reading it? And you have to convey that. And if it's to the prime minister, you have to make it very clear that you have to read the rest of this report, not just the first paragraph, because this is important. And it's helpful at that stage to have a third kind of information in it, which is an indication of the bits you're going to have to look at, the sort of things you're going to have to ask for advice on, uh, because something is coming your way and it will invalidate your policies or put you in a difficult position or whatever it might be. Put all those together and it's part intelligence, it's part policy thinking. Put those together and you could have an effective warning. So the decision maker wakes up, uh, those around them will have seen it going through and will already be starting to write the advice, detailed advice of Prime Minister, here are the three options you have in dealing with this situation. With all this talk about good information, where did Omond, as head of GCHQ, get his news from? The uh, two outstanding titles <laughs> to cut to the chase would be the Financial Times 
partly because it's global and you've got a much wider coverage. And The Economist, again, because they maintained a very good global network of correspondence. You didn't necessarily believe it all. Um, and indeed, your intelligence might uh, show you that some of it wasn't as complete a story as they might have had if they'd had the secret intelligence. But generally speaking, uh, you try and of, you read other outlets and today other websites uh, for a different purpose. And that's to try and assess what other people are thinking about the news. And does a former spymaster have any top tips to avoid misinformation, disinformation, or any other misleading materials? All you can do is minimise the risk you're going to fall into them. You can't eliminate it altogether. Um, the, there's always the risk of reporting something because it appears to be uh, already reported. So inadvertently, you're recirculating the conspiracy story. Um, and certainly at the uh, looking at some of the analysis from the 2016 US uh, presidential election, uh, the, some of the absurd stories that got circulated, the Pizzagate story, uh, which was quite damaging, I think, to the Democratic Party. That story was reported more by mainstream media as, as it were, an example of uh, disinformation. But of course, by repeating it, it is actually giving it uh, some legs. And so keeping that story running. Uh, so I think there's a, you know, just a need for care. Uh, journalists will write what they want to write. But it's, there's a need just to think, am I actually giving this story additional legs? Or should I be putting in a stronger warning that this has been exploded as a story and it's just not, not, uh, it doesn't have any credence. I think we've been pretty clear on, on what I think the right approach is, which is uh, that I don't think that Facebook or, or internet platforms in general should be um, arbiters of truth. As a good information advocate, does Omen see the social media platforms as a threat? The internet. Uh, the web and the social media um, are fantastic, fantastic innovations. Uh, how would we have survived COVID without social media to keep us in touch with uh, our loved ones? Uh, how would we have, the economy have survived just about so far if it hadn't been for online purchasing and the ability of businesses to organize activity from people's you know, working from home. So all of that's the upside. The dark underside is unfortunately that hard baked into the protocols of the internet is for example, anonymity. So it's possible to push stories out and remain anonymous. And that's where all this trolling and, uh, bully cyber bullying and so on comes from because you can do anything you like uh, anonymously and that i think rightly pushes responsibility back onto the uh, companies that run social media um, they tried for many years to say they just maintain pipes and it was no job, part of their job to know what passed through the pipes. Now that it's become clear that what is passing through the pipes is material that is deeply damaging 
anti-vaxxer disinformation, for example, uh, deeply damaging to society, they have an obligation uh, to do, uh, act more like publishers. I mean, they're not just publishers, but to act more like publishers with some liability for what is passing through their systems. I think they woke up not because of arguments from government or from responsible media, they woke up because big advertisers started pulling their accounts because they were not prepared to have their valued brand appear on a page alongside totally disreputable content. Uh, that woke them up. They started uh, more fact checkers, more uh, 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 vigilance being exercised over the material. Um, there's a big role here for automating these systems because the sheer volume of material, there's no way that uh, even had you tens of thousands of people watching all this stuff, you still couldn't catch it all. So it has to be automated. So you have to build AI um, machine learning algorithms. That has dangers for freedom of speech because there will be cases where you get false positives and it will throw out material that doesn't need to be thrown out. As, so you, in parallel with uh, uh, monitoring and uh, uh, being a vigilante, there has to be a very fast system to restore material when a human being has actually seen it and said, no, 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 that's, that's a photograph of the baby in the bath. That is not uh, a paedophile photograph or that uh, is not terrorist material. That is actually a discussion between two academics studying counterterrorism. Uh, but you are going to get those cases and you, you're not going to be able to avoid them uh, because you can't avoid using uh, uh, AI methods just because of the sheer volume of, of social media interactions. And finally, what does a man make of the portrayal of spies in popular media? It keeps the uh, public awareness high and the reputation of the Secret Service of MI6 uh, is accentuated by the, the Bond image. But it has nothing whatever to do with what they do. I don't think James Bond ever brought back any piece of intelligence in any of the books. He's basically an adventurer going sorting stuff out pretty violently. Uh, so that is all just fantasy. In the same sort of way, most of the uh, the carry, uh, the later books, again, are uh, recirculating a number of tropes about uh, uh, deceit and deception and so on. But actually, that's not how certainly Western intelligence agencies would expect to work. Uh, the one thing you don't do is you don't blackmail your agent you, because you wouldn't be able to trust anything that they then brought back. Uh, and you, don't, you build up a reputation for treating your agents well and looking after them because that way you're going to make it, your reputation will be such that you're more likely to attract people who want to help your country. Your country, your country, your country, your country, your country.